everyone. Welcome back to The Gods Will Not Save You, The Wire Revisited. I'm Willie. Hey there, everyone. This is Jakob. Also glad to be back here with you. And this is The Gods Will Not Save You, the podcast where we do a deep read into each and every episode of The Wire. That's right. And if y'all want to donate, you know what to do. Go to anchor.fm, The Gods Will Not Save You, slash support. Give us five stars on the Apple Podcast app uh, or wherever you get your podcast. I don't even know if like any other podcast apps like have a rating feature. Uh-huh. Maybe you could just like heart us on Spotify if you're listening to it that way. Anything to uh, help the algorithm in our favor. You all are great. Thank you. Um, and yeah, with that, let's get into season three, episode nine slapstick kind of a controversial episode so uh let's start off with uh going into some things about the detail uh Jakob I think you had some uh good intel that you wanted to share well yeah just setting it up you know there I mean we're gonna get to more of the action and other storylines in a bit but the theme of Sunday comes up quite a bit Mm-hmm. or at least a few times. This is one of them with the detail where they're setting up some uh, webcams, some spy equipment on Stringer's uh, print shop on a Sunday. Is <laughs> yeah. that? Eth- I mean, we're going to be, like you said, controversial, and there's a lot you know, right. centered around ethics, policing. Is this ethical to set up? Some- and, and by the way, you know, we're going to head out like regular workmen, says Prez and Lester. Um you know who like are there really guys like that dressed up on a sunday like if you saw two people you know dressed in electrical like work work outfits or whatever right. electrician gear on a sunday in your stringer what would you think unless he's not <laughs> i mean he's obviously doing other stuff but yeah it's kind of weird i mean i mean i think it's more of like the uh the 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 idea behind it is that nobody's like stringer is not going to be working at his print shop or whatever on a Sunday, it's like primarily going to be a day for R and R or whatever, (laughs) uh, which is what apparently slim Charles is doing because Gerard and Sapper couldn't get a hold of him when they're trying to look for the authority to kill Omar and his grandma. Or I guess I should, I don't know if they're trying to kill his grandma, trying to kill Omar while he was with his grandma. Um, but lo and behold, Stringer is like working. He's just like doing his illegitimate business uh, with, uh, the, uh, new day co-op meeting. So yeah, lots of different, uh, interpretation of what Sunday means in the modern American culture. Wait, is he doing, wait, what's their, sh- God damn it. Is it B and B? Yeah. The print shop, right? He's doing some B and B business and balling oh, no. <laughs> that was good I don't know. but anyways like you said you set this up really beautifully and once again i i uh no. dropped the ball you're like got some great intel okay let me get into the minutia of you know <laughs> the realism behind or like how realistic it is for you know blue collar guys to be out on a on a sunday setting up webcams <laughs> or electrical work or monitors but anyways policing obviously at the at center stage and you know this episode written by simon right and uh, george pelicanos and, and george yeah. pelicanos um so you know he's throwing out one of his epic curveballs like doing the whole you know you know we're you know having jimmy give a speech down in the detail office about 
you know, there's no one else that can do what we do, Lester, <laughs> and the whole natural police, and then, um, you know, talk behind that. And like you said, got some stuff, some background we'll get into, but then obviously leading to tragedy that we'll speak about and, um, you know, really like police murder. <laughs> right. not, not like, it's, it's a pertinent topic yeah. that uh, McNulty and Lester are talking about for sure. Yeah, so I mean... McNulty's throwing out names like uh, the other people that can hang do with, what they yeah. do. Uh, Don Warden's one of them. Ed Burns, Gary Childs, John O'Neill, and Steve Cleary. So, you yeah. know, um, before we get into you know destroying the police, <laughs> uh, you know, let's talk about uh, yeah. you know, some of these inspirations, and I could do my little like cop fanboy charade, and then be like, <laughs> defund, <No. laughs> like no, but... like I do, but. But anyways, Gary Childs talking about history, right? Gary yeah. Childs, who gets the shout out. This guy was, you know, to Simon and I'm sure Ed Burns, who was like his colleague, was a legendary homicide detective. He solved probably 60 cases and he was really well regarded by you know his colleagues. And he basically, he left in 1994, he left. Being a, he basically moved to a different, uh, um, like he moved to the county, as they say, you know, we got Gary Childs in the county, but it was Carroll County, not Baltimore County. So mm. basically there was a, uh, a system in place back in the, that time frame where no matter what, I guess he had to change to a different role within the department. Mm. So I guess he felt that, you know, I'm doing, this is just kind of my take, but. I think that's what everyone else said. Like, I'm doing my thing. I'm I'm a great detective. Blah blah blah. So I don't want to go back to patrol like a patrol car. So yeah. He basically went to work for the state's attorney in Carroll County, and it just upset a lot of people. Even Dan Rodericks, one of the like <laughs> a really big writer for the Sun, who wrote like an opinion piece. So uh, about the whole Gary Child's departure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like this policy has now let loose like a really good detective. And uh, so it offended a lot of people. And also not only apparently was he really good at solving cases, but he was Marty Ward's partner. So that's like one of the biggest cases ever where uh, Marty Ward was investigating or he was like an undercover cop on a buy. Yeah. Basically what pretty much I think inspired the whole thing with Kima where he got, but he died actually. He got killed by the drug dealer he was doing the buy with because he wanted to essentially occupy him while his team ran up the stairs and didn't want them to get shot, he thought, because he knew the guy had a gun. So, And then he was on the wire they were listening to getting shot, basically. So Jesus. I think that's the whole thing you know, with Kima and the wire and McNulty and everyone. And then Gary Childs was the one on the wire yelling, Marty, Marty. And then, Fuck. you know, they like traumatized him, which seems very traumatic. Yeah. And then he also, Gary Childs worked on the case to bust uh, Maurice Peanut King from the East Side. So <laughs> <laughs> this guy, just one name drop. There's a lot of... Gets around. Yeah, huh. so that's some stuff there. And then uh, the other guys, I didn't really, I don't know if you... Like, I, heard, I, I don't have any intel I, on that. I even looked up, I even... I Googled, yeah. John um, O'Neill. Well, I, I, yeah, I Googled these guys, and then this episode came up, right? Season three. 
mm-hmm. episode nine, of course. And there was like, uh, I guess on Reddit, you know, like we try to keep things not saying not Reddit's always entertaining. Like what you pulled up with, uh, the, uh, Daryl, da- Daryl Davis, right? Wait, what? Was, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, what's my normal policy? I mean, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, Daryl Davis uh, makes see. a cameo appearance uh, as the cashier at one of the Mondo Marts, and he's like a musician, right? Yeah, he's like a crazy uh, boogie woogie style piano, yeah. blues, like that kind of. He, I don't know what it's called exactly. He, boogie woogie. He's piano. a famous musician, but like in his free time, basically, he gets. KKK members to renounce their white supremacy and hand in their hoods. <laughs> and I saw a Reddit article or like a, I don't know what yeah. they are. I'm not a Reddit. Like or subreddit or some, Yeah, I don't know. But it like the headline was Mato Mart's policy yeah. is uh-huh. getting Daryl Davis to get you to turn in your KKK. <laughs> so the point is that Reddit is fun, but we're yeah. doing our own thing. But anyways, I when I Googled these two names, they showed up like on a thread apparently there's all these you know subreddit stuff like appreciation posts for each episode of the wire and it was like the names dropped in that basement by mcnulty okay here's stuff about don warden um here's this but i couldn't find anything on john o'neill and and cleary so i was like willie this is our time to really show up because our goal i mean not our goal but we know since our deep reads are so fierce that we're going to be like, I heard this podcast and that was crazy shit. But I was thinking that, so John O'Neill and Steve Cleary are brought up in regards to Woodlawn, which is where I think Fitzy works out of like, there's a field okay. office there. So I was thinking like, they got to be FBI agents. And I, and I found on just Google, there's a guy named John O'Neill who was this, big time special agent and he was a counter terror guy worked like after the embassy bombings out in the late nineties, like in Tanzania and, and Kenya. And then he died in the world trade uh, center attacks. So nine 11. Yeah. He died in nine 11. Sorry. Yeah. I should specify cause there are multiple, but yeah. So he was like, de- you know, he was like his specialty was Al Qaeda and he knew a shit ton about them. And then he died in nine 11. And who knows, maybe this is, maybe, I don't know his connections to Baltimore, but maybe <laughs> Simon's like, oh, so this is like throwing us all like, okay, law enforcement. Oh my yeah. God, they're the best. And then we got in- this guy uh, in our office, Prez. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I mean, also the main point of this too, right, is Lester telling McNulty that he needs he needs to get alive. Yeah, basically. <laughs> he needs to like find some purpose in his life because... Yeah, McNulty's like getting on this whole rant about like uh, we're doing God's work and nothing, nobody can like come close to us except for these uh, few guys who you just went into uh, some very interesting detail about. Mm. I mean, also, I mean, you said Donald Warden. Donald Warden's one of the main characters of Homicide. He's like what I imagine like natural. I'm like, yeah, he says that, right? Yeah. He be- does he say it without saying it? Uh, like kind... he's natural police. I'm like, oh, so that's where he got this line from. Because that that's the line. That's the type of stuff that infuriates all the people. I mean, we'll talk about the stuff, but you know, Simon's take. People are like, he's man, he's really pro police. He's always talking about good police. I'm like, but Donald Warden never shot his like he shot his gun once or something. <laughs> but they're, yeah. they're still cops. <laughs> but um, yeah, um, he also. He's the guy who uh, McNulty dropped his name 
in like episode four, right? He he he's like John Bailey. Oh yeah, Warden caught a case. He oh. investigated this John Bailey and like the wire John Bailey, his 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 case with the bark sales, I guess. <laughs> Sorry, that's it. Wow, no, that's crazy. Sorry. There's, there's a couple though. But anyways, yeah, sorry. Um, uh, McNulty needs a life because the <laughs> jobs will not save you. <laughs> yeah. Nice little uh, variation there. We got to get... Call back. <laughs> Fuck a job. I was about to say, we got to get McNulty hooked up with stitches. <laughs> but yeah, in the midst of... Lep's, in the midst of Lester kind of uh, doing a little rant on how McNulty needs to have like more of a purpose in his life... Uh, he kind of spaces out for a second on a picture of Beatty um, that's uh, attached to the refrigerator. And we got to give a little shout out to Erlen Lavik. Uh, that's, you know, he gave his Lavik magic to that uh, Vimeo uh, uh, video essay about like the cinematic style of The Wire. This is like one of the rare instances where the camera kind of lingers on the photo of BD after McNulty walks away, kind of like foreshadowing uh, a lot about, um, you know, how he actually feels about her. And maybe she's an anchor of stability that he could have in his life so that he's not so obsessed with the job. Um, yeah. And we see like other like. Later on in the episode, he runs into Santangelo, who's now just like a patrolman. And he's like, you know, praising like he's uh, describing the benefits of his job now that he doesn't have to like bring it home with him. And, that you know, st stability, eight hours a day, yada, yada, yada. So this is kind of like uh, making McNulty think differently about uh, his chosen career because he's he's getting signs. He's getting signs from the universe that uh Maybe he should change things up. Yeah, for sure. Um, Lavic is the man. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, let's uh, talk about. I don't. I mean, Kim Nolte's back dealing yeah. with bubbles. They <laughs> they want to meet him up in Mount Claire right. parking lot or whatever. I got. I gotta do a little more digging into that. Maybe it'll make appearance on the map one day. Okay, sure. Um, yeah. But so yeah, it's kind of just a subplot here with. I'm working on the phones, um, trying to get the like a tap right on the uh, on the burner yeah, yeah, on the yeah, track yeah. phones and yeah, dealing exactly. with that whole thing, trying to set Bodie up. And uh, I don't know if you got something about that or if you want to tie in Perlman. You had some good yeah. uh, well, intel on foreshadowing, but it, I mean, it's just like like on this rewatch, I'm like really uh, caught up in the whole like weirdness of the situation with uh mcnulty and kima like continuing to exploit bubbles's addiction <laughs> like they more or less like told him that he could keep the heroin after he bought it right yeah so what is he like, gonna do with three like 300 uh right like they're miles, like oh right? you know don't do too much or whatever yeah. like it's just i don't know like they're having him do like really painstaking like dangerous work for them and uh like the most they're doing is like what like 25 dollars a day or like i can't remember the rate that they were like yeah it was below yeah, yeah. i mean it, it incensed you and i'm really sorry for <laughs> even bringing up perlman without giving bubbles his due credit here and the struggle of his uh laborious you know i mean it's just ironic that kim nolte 
Thank you for coining that little phrase. Is that, is that the one we said on? Or was it Mikima? Mikima, yeah. Mikima, I mean, people get the, the picture. Yeah, they get the picture um, of exploitation. Compound words. Uh, uh, but yeah, like it it never like occurred to me that uh, they are not aiding in his recovery in a lot of ways. And it's ironic that uh, there are two people that are like preaching a lot about like wanting to... Uh, create a more equitable system like inside the police department and outside and they see themselves as kind of outsiders and radical thinkers but uh like a big part of like how they're conducting this investigation relies on really exploiting this guy yeah, and they're even applauding that he was able to talk Bodie into a deal for his bulk purchase exactly like, the man made himself 25 dollars. we don't have to pay him tomorrow <laughs> that's it that's you know bubs like just yeah. your savvy has now led to us pocketing an extra 25 for our next round at the bar. Yeah. Or, you know, they're going to need some drinks after what happens in this episode, right? With their yeah, exactly. inept uh, colleagues. Yeah. But um, uh, as you said, this all like maybe their uh, method of like trying to get like wiretaps on the phone is like going to run into some roadblocks here because as we see, Daniels and Perlman pay a, a visit to the track phone agency, right? To to try yeah. and, and authorize a wiretap. Yeah, Bay Wireless. Yeah. And Perlman's going all Karen, <laughs> uh, threatening. And Daniels is like, okay. Maybe, yeah. Maybe she's crazy, but I, I mean, kind of like it. Yeah, he's turned also, on. He's turned on by it for sure. Like, <laughs> I mean, we see him like staring at her so intensely mm-hmm. in the middle of her uh, lecturing that executive there. They, uh, you know, they, you know, like we talked about the phones. They know Bernard's headed out to uh, yeah. West Virginia this time. That's I, I mentioned that only because Lester says that's the more scenic route. And I'm like, oh, I, I feel like a lot of cops, they go to retire in West Virginia, like Ed Burns might have and other guys. But Lester likes in West Virginia too, which yeah. I just can't imagine though for Bernard. I mean, you got Baltimore or you got Maryland plates, right? Yeah. And you're heading to and from West Virginia. I mean, I can't imagine that that's like a pleasant ride as far as the <laughs> state troopers out that way, right? I mean, like we talked about Daryl Davis, he was getting started in Frederick, which is one of the stops that Bernard, you know, uh, buys four phones at. Yeah. So, you know, that's like as, as soon as you get out there and now you've read George Pelicanos, you know, the, the man who came out of town, right? That's uh, a lot of his, you know, all the, the redneck or white supremacist dudes, they all kind of come from Western Maryland. And Interesting, so. yeah. I mean, besides but, the cops, I mean, it must be yeah. treacherous out there. But anyway, I mean, so it, just... all, like, it also must not be a pleasant ride for Bernard <laughs> because of his companion, Squeak, who is like, trying to get him to upgrade at the car rental place to something more luxurious and is probably complaining about a lot of the busy work that he has to do. All right, let's get to the the main point of yeah, the you know, why we, yeah, we let off with the detail. We wanted to attack this while we're fresh and mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but they go out for a, a food run to get some low main in East Baltimore. I guess they're just going north of where the detail office is uh, located down on Clinton. So that takes them up into the heart of East Baltimore where, uh, you know, he and McNulty seemingly are just on a routine, you know, late night run to, yeah, grab some, some Szechuan, uh, what is it? 
Tang Szechuan. Tang Szechuan. So, mm-hmm. what's up with McNulty opening the? I mean, what's up with Pres- Paz yeah. opening the fortune cookie first and McNulty calling him out? Is this like a bad omen or something? I guess it is. Yeah, this is also uh, we got to mention George Pelicanos episode. So yeah. there's like lots of references to delicious food. <laughs> I, I thought you were gonna say delicious, like death. Well, yeah, that yeah, <laughs> yeah, food, spe- yeah. yeah. food and food and death are his two special two of his specialties. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so this turns into a fateful night because they unfortunately get a call that there's some riffraff. It ends up uh, proving a fateful night for Presbaluski because he sees uh, an undercover cop that he doesn't know is an undercover cop and shoots him a few times and ends up killing him, forever changing the trajectory of his career and really bumming him out. Because, yeah, Derek Wagoner, the black undercover or plainclothesman who's chasing a suspect or there's a gunfight or they're hearing shots and then... You know, of course, when McNulty hears the final shots, that's Prez yeah. hitting the mark, which to me is also like as much of a screw up as he is, he still manages to shoot this guy in the head. Yeah. So it's like the one time he's able to, you know, be a sure shot or. Yeah. Um, it, It's fatal, which is, you know, obviously kind of a cruel twist of fate as far as, you know, Simon's methods here of, of uh, stringing us along, but. A lot going on, especially, you know, in the conversation surrounding the police and exactly. how this show has aged. I know we've talked a little bit about it, but here we are almost a year after mm-hmm. we started this mm-hmm. and a year removed from the murder of George Floyd. And now the mm-hmm. verdict has just come out. Yeah. And we're here back uh, right. discussing this episode, which is... Exactly. You know, so what are your... I don't know. What, like it's a big... Uh, topic to you know to I mean, discuss here but i mean for me this uh whole in like sequence of events kind of like speaks to like the grand dysfunction of major institutions like simon like often talks about that uh like almost every instance we've seen of prez Beluski, uh misbehaving on the job had to do with him uh, being in possession of a firearm. Like, he accidentally shoots it off in the first, like, detail office. He shot up his own car. He half-blinded that kid. He And again, like, here we see tragically that he uh, killed a plainclothesman officer. And it just goes to show you, in my opinion, that, like, he proved to be, like, a really valuable asset to law enforcement but he never should have been given possession of a gun in the first place because like obviously he proved himself incompetent so what was the point of even like doing that when like he knew which lane to be in and like where he was useful like there should have been like some more rigorous uh investigation of his particular case you know there's perfectly good reason to have like you know fired him at his first fuck up and we've like talked a little bit about that and like how daniels was in a compromising position and like covered for him uh begrudgingly and you know perhaps daniels is kind of responsible for the path that presbaluski was led down to have him make a Mm -hmm. rash decision like this like it just doesn't make sense for him to have a gun like after he shot up his own car especially after he like even shot you know accidentally in the detail office 
and things just get progressively worse from there. Like when he ends up like abusing a kid and then, you know, forever ruins multiple lives. <laughs> like it, it's just so simple that, uh, he was suitable for certain components of the job and he didn't need a gun for that reason because he was always relegated to the position of kind of like computer wins. Yeah, exactly. And this is whole, you know, I, I want to, you know, you brought up defund in all caps, and, <laughs> but I mean, this is part of the conversation, right? Where it's kind of almost a compromise because there's people saying abolish, but then they're like, okay, defund. So there needs to be, you know, like you said, less cops, deserve to have guns or shouldn't that shouldn't even be part of the system yeah. um because we see that happen in traffic stops we see that happen with people not knowing their uh right. equipment from, yeah. you know pistol from a taser yeah um you know turning like a air like an air freshener hanging off of someone's rear view mirror into like a fatal situation yeah or a food run turning into a situation where he's not even supposed to be involved. Yeah. I mean, there's so many layers, but it's just ridiculous. Like, <laughs> and this, yeah, in the case the military, of the like the over militarization, like ends up, uh, you know, really damaging someone on the reverse end of like someone who's you know using the militarized equipment yeah. is like damaged himself. He he has post traumatic stress from this, and his life is made like worsened by it yeah and i mean if if prez was just born across the pond or whatever you want to mm -hmm. say and he was like a british cop he'd be like the head constable by now or something you know exactly. whatever they call it because he just they don't have yeah. most of them they have a special armed response hmm. i mean he'd pretty much be like the luther of the paper trail <laughs> i was just Britain. gonna mention that <laughs> Luther never needed a gun, right? I mean, I haven't seen that show, unfortunately. I'll get around to it. I mean, so I, I, you know, you talked a little about it, and that was one of the questions I wanted to uh, present to you here. You know, is Daniels' response at the headquarters after the incident where everyone, like Valchek and people, you know, are really concerned about the racial component, but yeah. um, not much concern seems to be shown toward Derek Wagner and Wagner and his family and, you know, his murder his death um but is this you know daniel's feeling a little bit of guilt at the fact that he like you said was in a compromised position or in a tough spot between valchek and burrell <clears throat> and, and could have maybe you know been at the forefront of prez's firing when, yeah. he, when things went too far the first or second or third time <laughs> yeah. um he kept going to bat for him <laughs> yeah he tells him not to talk uh talks about the mighty fop yeah. Um, to get a lawyer and, you know, it's just, I don't know if you have any more thoughts before I ramble on and just like yeah. talk myself into a bind. But I mean, there's lots of elements to like what's going on with the whole dynamic in this situation. Uh, and it just feels like really like uncomfortable and like icky to me when Valchek approaches Daniels, um, and he's like asking him to like consider like the racial component of it all, which Daniels just kind of walks away to. And like the nepotism is really like thick in there. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh, uncomfortable <laughs> for sure. Yeah, Al Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's he's really good at making things really uncomfortable as Valche. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I just uh, it's it's just crazy. So, and it's also just mind-blowing, you know, watching this now, 10 years removed from the first time uh, I saw it, 
which obviously things have changed a lot or like mm-hmm. as far as just naturally you know maturing and or i hope and so forth but um to us i mean this wasn't like i watched this as you know we would say like post oscar grant which for us was like our first right, big exactly. i mean not that i hadn't that's like seen police brutality before and stuff just growing up i mean it's america it's probably gonna happen in your lifetime if you you know live in an urban area or wherever but i mean it wasn't you know the whole idea of like police shootings and you know this isn't like the first time watching i'm trying to say you know black lives matter and all this like awareness or greater focus on it kind of start after Trayvon Martin, right? Yeah. So I remember watching this like, oh man, I, I probably couldn't, I wouldn't be a hundred percent truthful if I didn't feel like bad in the situation for Prez in some ways. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, you know, three or four times later, you're like, ah, this should never happen. Yeah. I mean, I was still like infuriated and it was like, God, this is so, this is so bad. But, um, you know, watching it now, it's like, ah, that's uh that's a classic simon towing the line right getting me to play both sides of the argument (laughs) yeah so that's where he thrives in this moment though the 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 biggest the the thing that seems most at stake surrounding prez is that his job his job is on the line whereas daniel's even alludes to it or am i tripping where he said you know don't don't talk i mean it's not about criminal charges but just it's almost like the entirety of the you know their method as far as dealing with prez is about his job and like are you gonna get your badge taken not like are you gonna go to jail for 10 years because he just shot a guy and he murdered someone basically um but oh it's just an accident you know these things happen yeah the worst thing is about the rate like oh prez might be uh you know seen as a racist which he does acknowledge like maybe it is in my head implicit biases Mm -hmm. much but Mm -hmm. uh who knows um so that's just insanity because I mean, it's just speaking to the reality that cops will get off with a lot of stuff. Yeah, they, they, they'll get away. Like, this is like a, a pitch-perfect example of the blue wall of silence where they're all... Like, even uh, Landsman, who's, like, talking shit about, like, his horrible record, isn't, like, really alluding to him, like, uh, having to possibly serve jail time. He knows, yeah. like, the worst that's going to happen is he's <laughs> going to end up as a... Middle school math teacher. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, it's just more like uh, you're not in the club anymore. You're not yeah. good police. Like, yeah. it's more of an embarrassment, you know, to, to, I mean, it is to them in some ways. I mean, even Tank, who I finally remembered his name, the <laughs> cop in Amsterdam, Herc and Carr's partner, mm-hmm. as far as their flex squad, is like, what, is he scared of black people? Uh, he didn't even shout police. <laughs> um, just saw black out the gun. So, you know, that's their commentary, not like, oh, this guy's like needs to be locked up. But now, Willie, I mean, maybe this is a sign of the times, you know, progress. Maryland actually did just mm-hmm. pass um, the Maryland Police Accountability Act, which Governor Hogan vetoed. But <laughs> the uh, state legislator, state legislature um, overrode the veto. Yeah. So it's uh, it's got four parts of it, but, you know, it's going to hopefully change a lot. So it's. You know, been met with mixed reviews. Uh, but anyways, you know, it's, uh, people who, cops who use excessive force will be, you know, facing additional criminal penalties, even up to 10 years in prison. I mean, we'll see how this all plays out. 
because now they're already like, we can't afford to impose these new uh, accountability measures. You want my small Eastern Shore town to have body cameras? <laughs> I'm going to have to hire four, four more you know, volunteers or people to, to review this footage and manage it. I can't do that. Uh, we're just natural police. Uh, but anyways, yeah, it's, it's named for, uh, it's involved in Anton Black, who's uh, basically got killed in the same way that George Floyd did. But uh, the yeah. um, medical examiner who the defense used in George Floyd's case, I think, presided over that case and uh, said that he died of cardiac arrest but he was strangled by the yeah. cop i mean they they yeah they suffocated him so yeah. um but yeah you know usual players fop and you know republicans think that it's gonna lead to less public safety because now cops are gonna be too scared to oh my god to react in split second decisions but you know more accountability so Anyways. Horrible that uh like you know, pretty violent death has to happen in order for uh, reform to be enacted. Yeah, it's America in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Like the most extreme thing needs to occur before subtle, in my opinion, logical yeah. changes need to be enacted. But let's not get too yeah. political, Willie. I mean, we gotta yeah. we gotta think of our fan base. You know, it's <laughs> like, um. You know, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's diverse. What can yeah, you say, right? Exactly. In thought and maybe, you know, just in general. Pretty bizarre. I never expected that on our, uh, you know, <laughs> wire podcast bingo card that like we would have some like, well, they're not trolling us, but there are just like a few MAGA people that like, you know, have like sh- commented on our posts in social media and it just seems like weird. I don't know. I don't picture like a lot of uh, hardcore Trumpers watching this show and like being in, invested in the storyline. But maybe you know, whatever. Um, yeah. So, but it it's crazy. Yeah, I I, it's been a wild ride, Willie. Yeah. But it, uh, anything else? You... I mean, it's just kind of weird when uh, Jay Landsman is uh, talking about uh, Prez's atrocious record before he kind of came into his own. Uh, yeah. Landsman is kind of like speaking for all of us from like early first our early first season perception of Prez. Yeah. And like you know he shoots a wall in the brick wall at the office. He shot up his own uh, police car, but McNulty's uh, like facial reaction is like one of like utter frustration because uh he can't like refute anything that they're saying but he has like seen uh prez's evolution over these past three seasons so it's a nice little dichotomy there mm-hmm. yeah he's uh he probably wants to tell landsman like there there aren't five guys who can do what we do <laughs> and prez yeah. is on my team but i mean yeah. yeah i knew he was gonna kill someone uh does McNulty feel guilt, you think, at all? Like he led I mean, Prez to, you know, kill this cop? I mean, he, he he's like right. kind of directing them as if he would, you know, somebody trusts like Kima or someone like that mm-hmm. or Lester or anyone. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe he does feel guilty. Maybe he should feel guilty. Maybe he should also feel guilty for kind of being a deadbeat dad in this episode and like taking on a late night booty call, uh, abandoning his kids. (laughs) Like really uh, poor parenting decisions there, I got to (laughs) say.
nice tra- nice seamless oh, uh, transition man. into our uh, topic here of yeah McDagostino right yeah. So yeah, basically, not only leaves his kids in the middle of the night, um, you know, basically lies to Sean, leaves his number, but then after he does is the deed, um, like you said, takes it back. Yeah, he takes the cell phone number away from uh, the kids' uh, bedroom desk, made like our dresser atop the yeah. dresser. Almost like, oh, I don't want to be held accountable for, like, anything I did to these kids to traumatize them. I mean, nothing goes wrong, thankfully. Um, but it's, like, also just, like, hiding evidence. Or, like, it's, like, a weird, like, weird move on his part to kind of just, like, erase all possibility of his kids getting in contact with him. <laughs> like, mm. I don't know. Not it's really a- thinking the whole family dynamic thing through in that instance. Is that his McBurner? <laughs> what about the political aspect here i know we had a little pre mm-hmm. pre-talk mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. about what's being shown on the tv as as right. nulti is leaving and then returns right it's yeah. bush carry stuff basically and, and know, there he, are some timelines that are a little convoluted yeah, it's i mean well first of all like McNulty like flips to the bush carry discussion like as he's falling asleep back at his own place but then he uh decides to fall asleep to like a world war ii like history channel documentary or something like classic dad move i gotta say oh guadalcanal just puts the dads to sleep (laughs) but yeah the whole like timeline and discussion about uh bush versus Kerry in this episode lightweight confused me because i know this episode came out in 2004 and of course that was like the same year that Bush and Kerry went head to head in the presidential race. Um, and this episode actually came out after like the results were announced and it was announced that, you know, Bush won the reelection. But I was like trying to think, like trying to like kind of wrap my head around like how they were like writing about this. And of course, like, you know, they wrote it before they knew like the election or like how the election was ultimately going to turn out. But uh, it was pretty, like, expert-level writing with Pelicanos and Simon, and I'm assuming William Abzorzi had some input into, like, the dialogue as well, how they just kind of, like, keep things vague so they don't acknowledge who the winner of the election was, but they're just kind of, like, talking about, like, some really present, you know, uh, relevant issues. In certain environments i exist in (laughs) voluntarily or not you know there was some conversation where people were celebrating the guilty verdict for oh yeah you know the murder killed george George floyd of course and and just i i swear like a random conversation came up prior to the verdict being announced where someone was doing the whole bush rehabilitation thing oh man he's like He's just a, he's a good guy. He just Ugh. likes to draw. I mean, yeah, it's like the vets and the, you know, the, the, the border crisis and, you know, the, the immigrants that he's drawing these portraits of and, and that's like, you know, absolving him. And of course, compared to Trump, he's like, he's such a decent guy. Uh, and I'm like, this uh, is it. This is the, I think this is Neolib yeah. 101. Really? I'm I think, learning. I mean, I think they're pretty comparable in a lot of ways. Exactly. Evil uh, is evil. I mean. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but anyways, that's just, I mean, and then watching this episode, bringing back memories of 
you know, just growing up as a teenager with Bush and yeah. all that stuff. But anyway, so yeah, man. But I, I like the little uh, comparison that you made uh, oh. when McNulty and D'Agostino are having a dinner date and, you know, the conversation like veers into politics mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> McNulty kind of channels his Ed Burns' energy a little oh, bit. Yeah. You want to go off on that a little bit? Well, yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know how it's hard for me to catalog episodes sometimes. Like, man, what what does happen in the next episode? Or who wrote? Like, I I would legitimately thought ed burns like wrote this teleplay just uh-huh. just the way that and then i was like wait he's not a sociopath he wouldn't shout himself <laughs> out in this episode but but you know just watching a lot of you know different videos about baltimore you know news like clips or shorts like al jazeera had some good ones back in you know early like mm-hmm. post recession you know talking to donnie ed burns and he i remember him on the street corner and I think I think it was West Baltimore, but kind of gave a similar <laughs> spiel about you know politics, and it was like about the economy more so, which McNulty's even talking about with yeah. Terry, right? Like, yeah, uh, you know, it's the economy, or is it, I think that's what he mentions. But you know, they they the, no matter which side or which party, they wouldn't know West Baltimore, you know, right. at all. Only if you know, Air Force One had to make a crash landing there, which is ironic because, you know, they're having dinner, you know, like in the shadow of the Capitol and, you know, Baltimore, Right. he could drive there for his date. I mean, it's really not far, but it's a whole different world. And that's basically what Ed Burns was saying in the, in the clip where it's like, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm going to freaking West Virginia to just be like raging against the machine. Yeah. You know, just being an OG. I mean, it's just so indicative of uh, McNulty's characteristics and his traits that, like, he, you know, is attracted to this woman and he's trying to, like, go about it the traditional way. He's, like, asking her out to dinner before they fornicate and he, like, wears a suit to the date. But he just, like, can't help himself and, like, <laughs> cannot no. not bring up, like, his, you know, highly opinionated uh, views of society. But it's just kind of uh, really uh, driving the wedge between him and Terry because, like, her whole kind of career path is, like, uh, contingent upon her having a really strong opinion about, you know, these political nuances and stuff. And he couldn't be less interested in it, which uh, leads leads to them uh, parting ways without intimacy at the end of the episode. very subtly set there but but perhaps maybe she should listen to like what he has to say Ah. and like take those insights into account i also find it hilarious too this this interaction because aside from some really important details being brought to light about you know their uh their budding or you know relationship that wasn't to be we learn about you know where they're from Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. jimmy's from lauraville and she's from homeland which is basically just adjacent it's like, they're like separated by morgan state the college up in like northeast baltimore so i don't know maybe there's some like deeper seated like geo beef <laughs> where they just she knew right then it wasn't even the politics it was oh you're from lauraville well homeland we don't mess with you <laughs> but anyways that's yeah. not the whole point. but this is also like uh the proof uh to a statement i saw where someone t- like added uh, david simon about or he, David Simon responded, retweeted a response, you know, who's, 
like the one white guy that would secretly vote for Trump or something like that. Or I don't know if it was Wired uh, I remember specific. that, yeah. And someone said that. McNulty, and then Simon's like, uh, he doesn't did, vote. Yeah, did you not watch yeah. season three, episode nine? <laughs> yeah, did you not watch Slapstick? Yeah. Ah, uh, whatever. So, you know, I think we... I think we did that. Yeah. Subplot justice. Yeah. Oh. You want to move on to uh Oh, yeah, man. Let's get some Cuddy. He needs to, he needs to get uh, on those permits. Those, yeah. Those permits. <laughs> yeah. There, uh, he's got some of his uh, landscaping buddies to help him out with uh, clearing out the gym <laughs> space, but he needs to get on those permits. Yeah, yeah. You're driving home the permits, just like <laughs> maybe not as subtle as Deacon did, <laughs> but oh yeah, little Melvin knows all about the permits, man. No, I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, he doesn't have to deal with it. But, but yeah, Cuddy's it's a yeah. whole new, uh, whole new world, you know. He's him. trying though. He's trying. Yeah. But there go that we get another uh, taste at like a little montage of a uh, you know misunderstanding of the whole thing. Like we saw this kind of thing with Lester and Bunk back in season two, trying to talk to yeah. a bunch of different uh merchant like a. Scene, See, oh scene. yeah, yeah. What is it? What is your take this time? You get really creative with these uh, <laughs> men of the sea. No. <laughs> You're like uh, sailors, uh, long. <laughs> no, they're not. Much. But then, uh, uh, yeah, and then you know, Bunk, of course, in his search for the gun, like and... has to go through a lot of like confusing interactions. And here, uh, we have like the really relatable uh, experience of Cuddy trying to cut through a lot of bureaucratic red tape in order to start his own business. Uh, having to go through a lot of business hoops with a bunch of different, you know, governmental positions that I have no idea of. <laughs> but well, uh, let me introduce you to the world of Abel Woolman municipal built. <laughs> Apparently Abel Woolman was a legendary like uh, pioneer. I don't want to get to like yeah. uh, savior, but engineering and like sanitation in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. The guy lived forever, man. He was like almost a hundred when he died. He was Jesus. born in the late eighteen eighties and died in nineteen eighty two. So <laughs> that makes that that can make sense. But uh, yeah, I mean, Cuddy, I don't know how he gets. I mean, he meets with the deacon like they mm-hmm. just have a follow up meeting, or I can't remember the exact context because you know the gods will not say we want to walk you through each and every scene. <laughs> okay. We, if you made it past the first four episodes, we appreciate you. Things are only going to get better, we hope. But yeah. anyways. More know, concise, they, for sure. Yeah. yeah, more concise. And uh, yeah, so the uh, the deacon's like, wait, uh, you know, there's names you can drop. Like Frank Reed. Or, yeah. is, or did they have to call Frank Reed? I'm messing up the exact like yeah. blocking. Or but yeah. Sequence. The, yeah, but, yeah. You basically got the. Fred the Reed's like, it. you got to draw my name, my guy. Yeah. Don't you know who I am? I I can, you know, make a call to Delegate Watkins. Yeah. But do you want to explain a little bit who Frank Reed is and his significance, you know, with oh, yeah, this Bethel is Amy Church and everything? Oh, yeah. And, oh, so you do. I, so, I was going to ask you, like, all, oh, like, uh, passive aggressively, like, do you want to know a little bit about uh, Bethel AME? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well, anyways, Frank Reed, I th- man, this shows. 
honestly, everyone, when I over talk sometimes giving this background, I'm like, oh yeah, little Melvin, let's, let's talk about him, Willie, a long time, like what began the season. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like after he got out of jail, you know, he got, he was pretty religious, maybe. I don't know how, you know, his faith was going into prison, but obviously he spent like a lot of time, <laughs> three, mm-hmm. three stints at least. Yeah. His lifetime, the longest one after the 1984 bus, but you know, he got close with Frank Reed, the third a reverend from Bethlehem, me, one of the most prominent congregations in Baltimore. Also the church that, uh, bunk lied on, um, you know, William Gant telling, telling D'Angelo that he was a preacher there to, to guilt trip him even further, trying to coax the apology or, you know, it, it turned out to be that instead of a confession, but, um, yeah, so we were kind of going back and forth before I get into the background of Bethlehem. Is this actually Frank Reed the third in right. <laughs> you know playing himself? Because I swear, you know, we talked about how there's an article where they talked about all the players in this season, like Richard Burton playing Shamrock and you know characters from the city, and then they talk about Frank Reed the third. I'm like, oh, this this is actually he's here. Right. But am I tripping? Because I mean, I know the article said he shows up, but what do you got before we? So, into this yeah, so <laughs> this is not actually yeah. the real Reverend Frank Reed. This is an actor, Felix Stevenson, yeah. who plays him in two different episodes. But then they, so he plays him in this episode, season three, episode nine, slapstick. Then he plays him again in a season four episode of A New Day. But then also the real Reverend Frank Reed makes an appearance as himself in a different season four episode margin of error so it's just just like Uh, yeah i don't i don't i don't know how to like put it into words like the the level of uh uh mind 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 uh games they're playing with us here is there like an acting term for this or something where this is like (laughs) different than just an like it you know stevenson the actor's not playing is that his name stevenson felix stevenson yeah stevenson's not playing a different character i mean frank reed frank reed is so prominent that he's literally played like they can't even get enough people like he just you know they're like mr stevenson sorry you're not enough we need to bring the real frank reed he's just been busy uh Mm -hmm. by the way i mean he's a he preached for i think since the 80s mid 80s all the way up until 2016 where he then was promoted to the rank of bishop in the AME um, right. church. Uh, but Frank Reed <laughs> III, he, he supported O'Malley in 99, uh, and that basically got him disinvited from a huge Baptist minister, minister's conference, damn. and he was supposed to lead a revival at this conference and be like a keynote. Like I don't know if that's what you call it in the church, but he was going to, you know, as prominent as he was, he was going to speak at this uh <laughs> at this event and they're like no you support o'malley and so that was what the letters to the editor were about was like you know there's diversity within the black community too you know this this is who he wanted to support so you shouldn't punish him and they're basically saying like this is not the christian thing to do wow you can't disinvite the reverend because he supported the white candidate but man so he didn't he he didn't necessarily get culturally quote unquote canceled he got religio politically canceled i guess yeah. whatever you want to call it um but that's pretty crazy stuff but yeah that just so ame i think i may have mentioned it stands for, it stands for african methodist episcopal mm-hmm. <laughs> um and the history of the formation of this like, branch i need to brush up on my 
religious terminology. But so there was a a church in the early 1800s. Um, and this is just kind of like its rise to prominence. I think that the AME branch or whatever it's called or you know, it, it's referred to started in the like late 1700s, mid to late 1700s. But in Baltimore, there was a young man named Daniel Coker who essentially he was affiliated with this church that was also Methodist down in like South Baltimore on Sharp Street, but it was ran by white people. Mm. And, you know, at the time, race in Baltimore is, it's almost, uh, you know, the, this conversation surrounding slavery and, and leading up to the Civil War, it's kind of what you would think of, a, you know, an environment or a, just ge- geologically speaking, you know, its relationship to the South and how it's like the northernmost Southern city mm-hmm. or, you know, the southernmost Northern city where they just kind of were like, we're not going to talk about race that much. <laughs> and their solution in Baltimore is basically, let's push the ACS, the American Colonization, Colonization Society, which is basically sending, you know, free <laughs> African-Americans or, you know, slaves alike back to Africa, to Sierra Leone and Liberia. So that was like a huge you know, thing in Baltimore, apparently at the free front, because the majority of black people in Baltimore just before the civil war were actually free, like Mm. over 75%. And basically, yeah, Daniel Coker was like just navigating that, that world. And he wanted to start his own thing. So they went to the Bethel AME church, which may have started on Bethel, which is in East Baltimore, or it's named after someone I don't even know. And that's what the street was named after, or that's who the street was named after Bethel. But yeah, Bethel AME, you know, he got up and running in 1816, but then basically he got sick of everything and just was like, I'm out. And then went to, you know, Sierra Leone, Liberia. Um, with the ACS. So he kind of hopped onto that, that train and was like, I'm out and then started his own Methodist congregation out there. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of how it got all started. And now we're here talking about Frank Reed. <laughs> um, you ready to move into talking about a uh, stringer and the bark oh. a little bit? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, pretty terrific performances from uh, Wood Harris and Idris Elba in this episode oh, coming man. hot off their, uh, you know, steamy little confrontation where Stringer admits to him that he had his nephew killed and they're both... Uh, steamy like this room? <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> let's, let's have a confrontation with I got some. I got something to tell you. Oh shit! Uh, but they're both uh, pretty brilliantly like playing the subtext of uh, knowing why uh, relationship between them is uh, kind of frigid, um, but also like kind of you know trying to keep up appearances. Brianna's coming around and uh, you know reiterating uh, McNulty's theory that D'Angelo was taken out, and uh, Avon, you know goes to bat for the organization and goes to bat for a stringer and covers up the little murder thing that happened. Um, and it's quite a, quite a thing to see, but, uh, 
you could still see that there's some residual tension between the two of them. Is that just a stroke of genius by Avon to, you know, kind of say it without saying it almost? Oh, yeah. You know, it's almost like a confession where he says, I didn't have anything to do with it. Or, you know, she says, what do you mean? Yeah, she catches and, on. Yeah, she knows basically that he knows. And like you said, he, he goes to bat for Stringer and their organization, even though his motives are different at the time, you know, as far as you know what he sees for their future. Regardless, you know, he kind of lets himself off the hook because when he responds or he, he almost like it's what's unsaid, you know, he, he kind of bites his tongue, even though, even though he knows he put his foot in his mouth and then Stringer's like, whatever, you know, whatever happened. And then Avon's able to absolve himself almost by saying, I had nothing to do with it, which technically it isn't a lie, right? I mean, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's not a lie, but... It's, uh, I mean, if you, if, if somebody were to like really get a read on, uh, how he was, you know, saying the things he was saying that somebody would be able to deduce, you know, somebody as perceptive as Brianna, uh, that he does have some knowledge of, uh, something that happened. And if we look at what happens later on and down the line and, you know, season four with, uh, Weebae's wife trying to come to Avon for support and, you know, raising Naaman and whatever. And Brianna more or less says that, you know, she's completely cut herself off from Avon and she doesn't want to speak to him anymore. So, uh, great stuff too from Michael Hyatt, right? Yeah. But yeah, let's get to the, you know, the sacred, you know, there's, there's a code out there on the streets, yeah. believe it or not. And it's, Sunday fun day. Yeah. Is that rooted in any kind of reality? Is that just a invention from the writers? Look I tried up, looking into that. I've gone back through almost three decades of like homicide statistics <laughs> and Sundays. I tell you what, it's really just like no, I'm just kidding. I haven't gone <laughs> I haven't researched. <laughs> yeah, I've been waiting in one of these articles or whatever just yeah. to find uh, you know, something about like a Sunday truce, but yeah. I mean, good for them, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it means a lot, especially, you know, this article, this episode rather, it's rooted in a lot of, uh, you know, there's got reverends and AME stuff going on. And then also this shooting that I'm sorry if I'm jumping ahead, but yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, we could circle back always, Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll um, it happens right outside of a church, Memorial (laughs) Baptist church. Yeah. And I got some more to say about that. But, I mean, just the whole setup for this really classic stuff. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the co-op, and I know we kind of talked about it at the top, yeah. but there's pretty good stuff here. Well, it's kind of like a poignant commentary on uh, how, like, old traditions and ways of, you know, self-governance are kind of eroding in, like, the face of, like, continuously more vicious uh you know, heads of power and stuff like that with, uh, I mean, it's also kind of like a a bit of naivety on Stringer's part that he doesn't know anything about like a, a Sunday ritual or whatnot, which leads to further, uh, you know, conflict between him and him and Avon, even if they're not like, uh, hashing it out as aggressively as as they have in past episodes avon yeah. knows that stringer has some more advantage on him but but what <clears throat> so you're saying like as far as the institutions and like that that's a commentary you know maybe shamrock 
should have traded his notepad for the Roberts Rules of Order. Is that he <laughs> Maybe. was slipping, right? He was, yeah. but that's, I mean, I mean, it's, like it's fun, like it's funny that uh that uh Stringer has kind of uh got on Shamrock's case in past <laughs> episodes about writing everything down that happens in you know conspiracy theory laden meetings. Um, so it's only natural that he'd want to check up on like what he's writing about, uh, in this present new day co-op meeting and sees him just drawing like a bunch of boobs and like pornographic <laughs> stuff or whatever. Um, so, you know, further disappointment, <laughs> uh, Shamrock is proving himself to be, but it's also kind of a callback to the first episode where Stringer is doing his little doodles in the courtroom, yeah. uh, <laughs> like McNulty's kind of spying on him as if you, you know, if you can remember to see if he's like taking any interesting notes or whatever. And he's just drawing a picture that says, fuck you, detective. Um, at least he was kind of like staying on topic of like his surroundings and whatnot. <laughs> like he was uh, making a calculated move on his part. Shamrock is just horny and like yeah. over imaginative. So don't foresee Shamrock uh, rising to a level of power like Stringer Bell anytime soon with, uh, you know, his doodling habits. Um, but the shooting, right? Yeah. It's a broad daylight shooting outside of a church, mm. which, I, I mean, I commend Omar and his grandmother, you know, because even though it seems like she lives next door to a church, she's like, no, we're getting a cab yeah. and we're heading to the one I want to go to. Hmm. Could it be maybe Bethel AME across town? Because even though, okay, sorry, I got I to do this with me. You know, I'm not just trying to always like glorify these violent incidents. I, I also want to know, you know, where these things take place. Because as Baltimore, you know, they say Baltimore is also hmm. the main character of this show in a lot of ways. And I got like the side project trying to do less of this and more mapping. Um, but the street sign says West Preston. But this is, I, I'm i 99% sure, based on some comparisons, you know, side-by-sides on the old Google Maps and still shots of the scene, that this is actually outside of Memorial Baptist Church on East Preston in North Carolina in East Baltimore. So I don't know if they hoppered it again and just, you know, I appreciate like, okay, we're all like, this is like West Side stuff happening, West Side B. Why would they be trying to kill Omar on the East Side? But like, what if his grandma lives on the east side and that's just where they happen to trail? You know, you can't say Baltimore is not the biggest city in the world, but then everything needs to be so specific that we take street signs all the way across the city. It's like the underlying beef of O'Malley and sign has to be that too. It's like you never brought, you never even brought back my street signs. Like where the hell did your production crew take them? But I don't. I mean, so yeah, it seems like a lot of work to move everything, but. I, t- I didn't catch on to that, to be honest. I, I, yeah, I'm sure, like, what percentage of viewers are, like, sitting there, like, ah. But it does make a lot of sense because, as we've, you know, talked about, a lot of this season is filmed, for the most part, I think, in a certain area of East Baltimore with Amsterdam and, mm-hmm. you know, other corners that they've moved with the sets from the west side. But, you know. We also get a stringer starting to catch on to the whole <clears throat> little scheme, fast one that Clay Davis is pulling on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. he's uh, he's really making Clay uncomfortable, I think, and he's starting to realize that his this is not the street, man, is really <laughs> not 
that effective <laughs> with someone who's lit, like they spend all their time on the street. <laughs> so I don't know what else, uh, mm. you know, did anything else <clears throat> catch your eye there, like in that dynamic? Uh, that scene kind of speaks for itself in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> Stringer is like starting to realize that maybe he's not uh, like as <laughs> cold blooded yeah. and calculating as a lot of these people in the political sphere are. And, he probably has to like up his manipulation game tenfold to uh, compete with the likes of uh, cunning Clay Davis. A quarter of a million dollars. I yeah. mean, this guy, he's got, he's rolling. Yeah. Okay, one last thing though. After, you know, they screw up the shooting, Sapper and Gerard, <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're having to meet back with the boss. And I just found that dynamic, you know, like they. <laughs> almost just killed an old lady and, you know, Omar and the innocent cab driver, you know. Um, but, you know, that's like their biggest worry. It's like, ah, what's Avon going to say? And then, you know, Avon regards them, you know, in such poor taste. And <laughs> he, he's so low on them that he has basically got muscle from the east side, which is like, <laughs> you know, we've seen kind of the rivalry. And then he says they're from Milton on retainer. And I think that's who... You know, I just appreciate the detail here with the whole, like, uh, street angle because he had talked about that when he got out of jail and, like, way back in season two and mid-season two, I think episode five, he's talking with Stringer, like, oh, who's who's got the good product? And they're talking about, like, Milton and, you know, guys on the east side. So is that, like, got to be the same Milton, right? Probably. So now yeah. he's, like, helping him out? Well, yeah. I mean, Avon's paying him a lot, but <laughs> I just, yeah. you know, these are things that keep me going do they also keep you up at night? <laughs> uh, sometimes I'm like, does like who's Milton? Is it Milton Tillman or is there's this big geo joke and it's just talking about Milton because you know that neighborhood like I talked about. There's you know Milton's a big street that runs through the east side, not far from Monfort, where Prez shot Derek Wagner. It's mm. just it's gonna yeah. be on the maps. That's just that that is helping me sleep better. It's like. You know, Yakov, you got more to say about this? Just save Willie, save everyone the time. Just put on the map. If they want to click on it, they'll learn. If not, you know, you did your best. Very interesting stuff. <laughs> um. <laughs> but with some more law enforcement stuff, uh, Bunny is uh, really happy about the 14% decrease oh, in his yeah. district. And uh, he's got his retirement gig lined up with uh, security at Johns Hopkins. Uh, things seem to be going good for him. But little does he know that uh, the deacon has kind of like a prophetic warning for him that he needs to quote unquote finish the job or finish what he started with Amsterdam because probably not too long after, you know, he's, uh, you know, positively uh, talking about the future trajectory of his life, uh, somebody gets killed in Amsterdam yeah. because he made the fatal, unforgivable mistake of making fun of someone's shoes. Oh, I think you can say the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So someone from, uh, Tucky's crew made fun of someone from Ghost Kane, another <laughs> yeah. name that dropped that I probably have talked about that name. I mean, yeah. Ghost is actually a member of the co-op. It's 
there's an actor credited with playing Ghost this episode. I don't know oh, wow. exactly who it was. But yeah, like Bernard Ghost Kane and um probably spoke ahead of my like got ahead of myself in the first episode when they're like staking out ghosts with you know, Kima, Herc and Carver. Uh yeah. but big time player with the relations to Grandison and and Bay Brother and all sorts of crazy stuff. But <laughs> You know, don't make fun of anyone's uh, shoes and his crew. <laughs> or his yeah. crew learned a lesson for making fun of someone's exactly. shoes, rather. But, yeah, I mean, what do you think about Colvin's tactics where he's you know, playing some real hardball with the, yeah. uh, the lieutenants? Or, you know, Bodie's not there, though, right? No, he's not there. So, but, uh, yeah, he does uh, let them know that the whole operation is going to be shut down unless somebody comes forward with a confession about this little killing that went down that's, you know, threatening to derail his whole project here. Um, what? I mean, you know, some baby steps for Carver in his evolution. We see him, like, uh, really coming to appreciate the ambition of... Uh, bunny's plan and whatnot but like uh his solution was to just like move the body outside of like the hamsterdam jurisdiction or whatever you call it without even like giving any thought to like the bloody trail he's gonna yeah. leave behind so like uh you know uh we need some some better intel uh in in colvin's corner in this moment he, he needs to uh you know surreptitiously of course delegate some more uh delegate equally some more uh plans for um keeping this project under wraps yeah and, and i mean maybe carver needs to go shadow the homicide unit for a day or something do you think yeah. that a cop i mean it's like you know i hope he's never one of those cops like oh i'm a cop so i could kill someone and get away with it because right. i know how cops think but it's like yeah. you're not i mean he doesn't even notice yeah there's a third shell casing that he doesn't locate yeah. <laughs> i mean maybe this was it maybe the stress of herc bucking and yeah. you know everyone around like the pressure of the moment but yeah just and it know. also like correct me if i'm wrong but like him like having his fingerprints all over the cadaver yeah. would prove <laughs> problematic like i'm assuming <laughs> yeah so but yeah. you know crotchfield right the cop the homicide detectives kind of, you know, they'll keep it under wraps if they make it a dunker. So, yeah. Uh, which Colvin comes through. But, I mean, what's up in this episode? There's a couple of instances, maybe, of, like, as far as morality is concerned, of certain characters and role reversals. We had Avon kind of talking to String about, uh, you know, doing less murder or attempted murder <laughs> yeah. you know and it's usually the opposite and that's how the co-op starts off almost with prop joe trying to tell string to get avon under control so the body stopped dropping but then he's saying hey man you should not be killing on sunday and then you have herc saying like this is wrong i'm gonna call the son even though he's snitching and yeah. carver's you know trying to maybe do the right thing in his eyes yeah her kind of is taking a stand too and yeah. You know, it's like a I mean we all yeah, it's uh it's a lot of uh complicated uh little nuances to kind of like uh wade through. Um but I just wanna say, you know, we all know what happens to snitches, they get stitches. So <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> Herc okay. is 
Kirk is a snitch and he's going to get the stitches in form in the form of, you know, having to, you know, witness the traumatic event of the mayor getting a blowjob and like, you know, being <laughs> uh, relegated to a career working with Levy eventually. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, even this- though he doesn't have physical stitches, he, he has the metaphorical stitches for sure. And Stitches is going to go back in time and tell him, good job. job. (laughs) And he's going to lose. You about to lose your job. Exactly. Okay. uh, Right. (laughs) Um, But Uh, also, uh, I like that uh, this uh, episode plants the seed for Stringer learning about the presence of uh, Bunny Colvin, you know, kind of uh, calling the shots in Amsterdam, which, uh, you know, may or may not lead to him, like, being aware that he's someone that he can tip off about Avon in a later episode. Oh, so that's a good, yeah. Didn't notice that really. I mean, good stuff. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways. Yeah. So man, the layers, the layers, the layers. Yeah. Uh, what do you want to talk about last? Uh, next, so, or, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Omar, you know, he's not taking the whole thing too well with, uh, Gerard and Sapper trying to kill him and his grandma, and uh, he more or less makes it known that um, he's going to finish the job with Avon, and he knows it could be a dangerous situation, so he's keeping uh, Kimmy and Dante Dante, out of the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. Man's got to have a code, right? Yeah. Or has he, you know, he's like a little wiser now after the whole Tasha incident. Exactly. He just knows that. He made the mistake of getting them, you know, crossing, you know, what Kimmy perceives to be, you know, easy money with his personal beefs. So, uh, yeah, man, it's like the one of the final nails in Strings Coffin, right? Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's not not gonna end well. So, I mean, we could just. I just want to finish with City Hall stuff and leave yeah. tomorrow. You know, as much as I love to talk about my guy, Vincent. <laughs> okay, we got Yeah. Marla goes, he has to go to Motorsport. But, okay. Uh, copyrighted music might come one day. I might make like a Vincent montage to, you know, the song Motorsport with like uh, Cardi B and. Okay, yeah. Like nice. Migos. Yeah. yeah. Uh, apparently she wasn't supposed to be on it. It was Nikki. Anyways, ah, oh, some rappy, but um, you know, gonna go look into the Oracle, which is the Vinners, <laughs> aka Spinner. I mean, you know, yeah, no Spinners. We got we ride Vinners because <laughs> that's Vincent, man. He he's yeah. got the good word. Yeah. Woo! Shouts out to Norris Davis. Yeah. Norris Davis. <laughs> Uh, Tommy, so back at City Hall, Tommy is largely still keeping under wraps his intentions for running for mayor and uh, playing coy with Tony, who's got uh, some campaign materials out. He's got some bumper stickers with nice colors on them, and he's talking about uh, running uh, on a campaign of reforming the public school system, which is kind of like... You know, what we see with, you know, what happens in season four and how fucked up the public school system is, maybe he should have been the one who succeeded in uh, unseating Clarence Royce um, based on, you know, Tommy's decisions to, you know, reallocate funds away from from the schools. So, 
you know, kind of twist and turn of our expectations again there where we, we see Carcetti as kind of a hero in his efforts to uh to win the election, but you know, he doesn't uh fulfill a lot of his promises. So So you're saying that someone who ran on a platform to reduce crime maybe wasn't as effective as someone who would have ran on the things that address, you know, maybe the root causes for these yeah. phenomenons. I mean, it's just the fatal flaw of Tony Gray that he's maybe not as like uh, eloquent or like charismatic as Carcetti is in a lot of like these uh, political stump speeches where he's, you know, opining or uh, pontificating on like yeah, yeah. the ills of uh, the, you know, the of the city. So they yeah. should have uh, joined forces in a much more cohesive way way and like actually uh helped each other out with uh you know correcting a lot of the the societal flaws instead of uh driving a wedge between themselves and eventually becoming bitter adversaries so yeah ah what could have happened yeah i mean a a gray with carcetti as his council president which yeah i guess in the local politics is like a you know vice president type thing almost I but mean, he, yeah, he wanted to take his white self elsewhere. Do you have anything <laughs> else you want to add, or do you want to wrap things up here? It seems like we. Yeah, I just want to wrap up this episode of all your really great thoughts and you know uh, subjects that you knew a lot a lot about what you're talking on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is good, man. Let's uh, let's have a celebratory. You know, uh, beverage, like uh, getting hydrated again, it's kind of getting steamy, like a, like a empty warehouse. Uh, you know, hopefully I don't all of a sudden start leaking a little cut from one of my, my uh, deltoids here. And Willie's like applying pressure, speaking in really, uh, intoxicating accents. But, um, you know, we got, we got some documentary, a documentary to check out. That's right. Um, you know, I'm excited a uh, documentary about the Baltimore music scene uh, with, you know, super producer Issa Rae involved. Yeah, and great local talent and, you know, uh, perspectives from T.T. the artist, right? Yeah. Dark dark City Beneath the Beat. Nice. That's it, right? Uh, yeah. Whatever you say, man. I All forgot right. the title, but... Uh, all right, we're going we're gonna to figure it out, though, when we pull it up on the Netflix. So exactly. It's been great, though, and, uh, yeah, let's break, sure. it, break it down. To... Sure, so thank you again for listening, everybody. Again, if you want to donate, that's anchor.fm slash the gods will not save you slash support. Um, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff, the social media. Yeah, please do so. We'd love to engage, you know, any... Comments, questions, concerns uh, can also be directed to our Gmail, which is the gods will not save you at the aforementioned Gmail dot <laughs> uh, yeah. com. So yeah, and also shout out to uh, Mostart, our uh, very generous uh, provider of intro, outro tunes, bumper music. All sorts of great stuff. Check him out. He's got some new stuff up. Mostart.com. You're not going to be disappointed. Exactly. And also shout out to really nice guy and great artist Andre Tesnes for doing our podcast logo. 
uh, you make us look legit. So thank you for that. Oh yeah, super legit. <laughs> and uh, it's also legit. We're birthday brothers, but not related. <laughs> nice. All right. All right. Thanks. Everybody. Thanks everyone.